Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, author and editor Irvin D.S. Winsboro, whose latest book is Florida's Freedom Struggle, The Black Experience from Colonial Time to the New Millennium. Although it wasn't humane, the Spanish did allow Africans to marry, to sometimes to hold property, to buy their freedom, and so forth. And the British were more concerned about using African Americans as as uh, units of production, that is to say, s- slaves. Teddy Roosevelt, inspired by Charles Darwin, establishes the first national bird sanctuary on Pelican Island in 1903. Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, came out a year after Roosevelt was born. So by the time he was old enough to grasp what the book was about, he latched onto it and stayed with it. The Trust for Public Land commissions a play about Florida's special places. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. D.S. Winsboro is professor of history at Florida Gulf Coast University and author or editor of award-winning books including Old South, New South, or Down South, Florida and the Modern Civil Rights Movement, and Florida's Civil War, Explorations into Conflict, Interpretations, and Memory. Dr. Winsboro's latest book is Florida's Freedom Struggle, The Black Experience from Colonial Time to the New Millennium. Winsboro points out that people of African descent arrived with the first Spanish explorers 500 years ago and have been in Florida ever since. In fact, that's one of the working, that uh, was the working premise of the book itself, is to go back and look at the historical record and, and seek to illuminate, and I think I was at least somewhat successful in that mission, to illuminate the experiences of African Americans from the first European contact in Florida and to also help educate Floridians of our generation today uh, in terms of all of the nooks and crannies of that history. Uh, African Americans have been here since the earliest. They accompanied uh, Ponce de Leon when he came, 1512-1513. Uh, they've been here through all of the, uh, all of the uh, periodizations and, and uh, epics of Florida history since that time. They've participated. 
they've helped, they've contributed to the, to the growth of this land, uh, once known as La Florida, Florida today. And throughout that period as well, they, they have always fought uh, for dignity and self-actualization uh, in that process as well. During the first Spanish period from 1565 to 1763, many of the black people living under Spanish rule were free. During the English occupation of Florida from 1763 to 1783, blacks outnumbered whites by about three to one. Despite being a majority of the population, this was not a good time to be black in Florida. Irvin D.S. Winsboro. And the British um, not only sense but practice of race relations was, was much more severe than that of the Spanish. The Spanish, although it wasn't humane, the Spanish did allow Africans to marry, to sometimes to hold property, to buy their freedom and so forth. And the British were more concerned about using African Americans as, as uh, units of production, that is to say s slaves. And they represent a little more than units of production and property under, in, during the British period from 1763 to 1783. That changed somewhat when the British turned, uh, after the American Revolution as a result of the Treaty of Paris, 1783, turned Florida, which of course was a colonial, was a territory, back to, the, uh, to, to Spain in that time period. And Spain, in fact, refused to uh, decline, I guess I should say, to send back many of the slaves to the British colonies, in particular Georgia and the Carolinas. Uh, and that became a very sensitive issue to uh, not only the British, but then uh, the United States, the new nation of the United States, which of course turned the uh, former British colonies into states. And from those states, many of those states, the Carolinas and Georgia again in particular, many African Americans, slaves, fled to Florida uh, seeking freedom. And not only that, but many of those African Americans then merged uh, through various processes with the Native American communities. Many of those became known as Maroon communities, and many of those African Americans who intermarried or merged with the Native Americans at that time period became known as Black Seminoles. So that gave rise to another period in Florida history, and in fact in American history, uh, that uh, lasted through 1819, 1821, when uh, Florida became, uh, when the United States acquired Florida, as a territory as a result of the Adams-Onis Treaty. The, the American flag itself was raised over Florida in uh, 1821. Throughout the 1800s, the United States fought a series of prolonged conflicts in Florida known collectively as the Seminole Indian Wars. A primary catalyst for those battles was the fact that runaway slaves from areas north of Florida were seeking refuge among the Seminole Indians here. In much of his work, Irvin D.S. Winsboro examines the role of African Americans in the Civil War. African Americans played a very pivotal role and a rather large role uh, in uh, Florida's Civil War. That this this uh, traces back to um, really the outbreak of the war. Florida became a third state to secede, the third state uh, to secede, and uh, eventually joined the Confederacy. Following, incidentally, South Carolina and Mississippi. For African Americans, their participation in the Civil War in Florida was a special cause. That special cause was not to reunite the Union, but to free slaves, to end slavery, and to free slaves in the state. And wherever African Americans joined the Union forces, and they did that in rather large numbers, I'll speak to that in just a second, their primary mission was to free slaves in Florida. Uh, for slaves in Florida, oftentimes, uh, they're saying was during the time of the Civil War, freedom was as close as the river. That is to say, the Union forces were on the other side of the river, and wherever the uh, African Americans could flee, the slaves could flee, or if they could get to that river, to the Union forces, they knew that they would secure their freedom, which they had always desired, which they had always desired. Uh, in Florida itself, about 1,300 African Americans joined the Union forces, 
And uh, it's something that uh, you and I discussed a little bit earlier. Uh, not only did they join the Union Army, but they joined the Union Navy as well. And that's something that is not only underlooked, but certainly underanalyzed, and, and not only Florida, but in American history as well. Following the end of the Civil War in 1865, the population of African Americans in Florida began to decrease when compared with the white population. Through the Civil War, the African American population in Florida was about 47 percent, just about 47 percent. And that would include um, free blacks in Florida. And there were, at the time of the Civil War, there were about 931 free blacks in Florida, incidentally men, most of whom lived in Key West for economic opportunities, as you might imagine. Key West was the largest city in Florida in that time period and carried the economic op opportunities for African Americans as well as uh, laboring white Americans of, uh, of uh, sponging and wrecking, salvaging, and so forth. By the time of the late 19th century, the African American population in Florida began to decline uh, relative to the white population in Florida as African Americans fled Florida for uh, more... Uh, self-perceived economic opportunities in the North. And of course, in American history, this is known uh, as the Great Migration. And Flor black Floridians, like blacks from throughout most of the South, especially the Deep South, uh, began to flee, not to flee, but I should say to move to Northern states seeking uh, economic opportunity and congruently also more social opportunity and respect as well. African Americans were technically free after the Civil War, but in the Jim Crow era of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, many laws were passed in Florida limiting their rights. For example, black students and white students could not share a classroom or teachers. It was illegal for a white person to marry someone with one-eighth African American blood. Law enforcement officers could be sent to jail themselves for handcuffing black and white prisoners together. Railroad and streetcar companies had to provide separate facilities for blacks and whites. Irvin D.S. Winsboro. Military reconstruction started in Florida in 1867. It lasted through the 1870s. In fact, it ended a little bit earlier than many of the other states of the Deep South in Florida when the uh, reactionaries resumed control. And they were known in Florida history, they, they are known in Florida history, in fact, as the Bourbons. And they recaptured control of Florida and turned Florida back, at least in terms of race relations, to almost a mirror image of what it had been prior, prior to, this, to the Civil War uh, during the antebellum era in Florida history. That led to an era that uh, historians now call the nadir of race relations in Florida history, the low point of race relations in Florida history, which, of course, was the explosion of uh, white supremacy and uh, not only white supremacy, but the different uh, mechanisms used to defend white supremacy, not only the educational systems, public schools, as most of us are familiar with, but also violent methods, the rise of the KKK in Florida. In fact, Florida, by the time of the end of Reconstruction and, and late 19th century and moving into 20th century, Florida led uh, the United States and certainly the Deep South in terms of per capita lynchings. Uh, many Floridians don't know that. Many Americans don't know that. They think of Florida as a border state and sort of a, a moderate state. But in fact, uh, Florida was just as rabid, just as vicious, and just as segregationist as any other uh, states of the Deep South. The contemporary civil rights movement is often identified as starting with the landmark 1954 Supreme Court case, Brown versus the Board of Education. As Dr. Winsboro points out, African Americans were fighting for civil rights in Florida decades before that decision. There was a very robust movement going on to end segregation in Florida and uh, where it reared its ugly head, incidentally. But that movement began to take root in terms of uh, attacking uh, segregation in the public school systems. And that uh, did not occur as many historians seem to suggest and uh, 
based on sort of a swing or a demarcation of the convenient date of Brown versus Board of Education, 1954. In fact, if you look at the historical record in Florida, <clears throat> that movement picked up, it became re-energized in the 1930s and 1940s when the NAACP in Florida, uh, many times led by Harry T. Moore and uh, the, the uh, Progressive Voters League in Florida, began to sue public school distri districts not for desegregation but for equal pay uh, for teachers. And that would uh, presumably knock down the first, uh, pull out the first brick in that wall of segregation, uh, especially in the public school systems that so affected the black communities throughout Florida, wherever they existed. Uh, so there are a number of legal suits, uh, many of which were um, instituted by very uh, prominent uh, uh, attorneys from the time period. Charles Hamilton Houston, head of the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, and his uh, his uh, journeyman lawyer, or his lawyer then in training, a lawyer by the name of Thurgood Marshall, who later went on to serve as a justice on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, and another lawyer named Constance uh, Baker Motley, who went on to become a federal judge, a federal appeal judge. During World War II, African Americans in Florida were re-energized through the Double V Campaign, which stood for Victory Against Fascism Abroad and Victory Against Racism at Home. The campaign was only partially successful. Even after the mid-1950s ruling to integrate public schools, it would be decades before that would actually happen in Florida. Most school districts in Florida, most, not just a few, but most did not desegregate until the early 1970s, thoroughly desegregated. Uh, most of the school districts in Florida had uh, resisted, had stonewalled desegregation through various devices uh, and, and, uh, and uh, legal challenges. Uh, in the courts, in, in the federal court systems and so forth. Uh, so this occurred, for, for perhaps many of your listeners, this occurred in our lifetime. This is an ancient history. Even in this new millennium, when we have an African-American president, Winsboro says there are still challenges to be faced to reach racial, economic, and social equality in Florida. Because by the late 20th century and into the new millennium, we saw the influx of a very large number of immigrants into Florida. In uh, Miami uh, alone, 800,000 Cubans, for example. And we had many uh, immigrants of color coming into Florida, uh, Bahamians and Haitians and so forth. And many African Americans in Florida saw that as a threat to their, their, uh, their uh, livelihood, their opportunities, their employment opportunities and so forth. And this led to not only protests, but also in some cases even even violence, and that occurred in St. Petersburg, as you may recall, Ben, in St. Petersburg and Liberty City and Overtown and so forth in Miami. So we see a great deal of, of unrest characterizing uh, the racial scene, the racial landscape in Florida as we left uh, uh, the old century and moved into the, new, into the new century. Dr. Irvin D.S. Winsboro is author and editor of the book Florida's Freedom Struggle, The Black Experience from Colonial Time to the New Millennium, published by the Florida Historical Society Press.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. To find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more, visit us online at myfloridahistory.org. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Spanish colonial historian Susan Parker. In St. Augustine, nearly all of the buildings standing since Spanish colonial days are made out of a substance called coquina, the Spanish term for shell. Coquina appears along Florida's Atlantic coast from Anastasia Island southward. It is made up of millions of small clamshells compressed and chemically bonded over time. The Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine was built of coquina mined on Anastasia Island. Spanish Florida officials first make note of coquina in 1580, when St. Augustine was only 15 years old. It would be another 90 years before coquina was used in any serious building project with the construction of the Castillo. St. Augustine residents also began to build their own homes of coquina. Today, it is widely accepted that the Spanish citizens turn to coquina because it doesn't burn. Yes, it's not flammable, but the officials' reports of the 1690s, when coquina houses were first begun, praised the shellstone because it did not rot and said nothing about fire. Spanish colonial historian Susan Parker This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. The sun shines bright, the mangroves quiver as the pelicans take flight. In this Isle of Eden, no cause for protection, no sanctuary needed under nature's direction. Gators, panthers, dolphins, ibis, eagles, manatee, storks, terns, fish, herons, turtles of the sea. Fins, feathers, bird plumes, scales, beaks, bills, and wings. Estuary and lagoon, home to many living things. Weep, squawk, croak, chirp. The sounds that could be heard. Run. But not a human word. Trouble that began, the course was charted. Legacy of man, island peace departed. That's the Blue-Eyed Monsters performing the story of Pelican Island. Inspired by Charles Darwin, President Theodore Roosevelt designated Pelican Island the first national bird sanctuary. Janie Gould has more. In an effort to protect birds from feather hunters, TR made Pelican Island in the Indian River the nation's first bird sanctuary. That was in 1903. Rebecca Rickey, executive director of the Heritage Center in Vero Beach, is active in the National Theodore Roosevelt Association. In the book that Douglas Brinkley just wrote called The Wilderness Warrior about Theodore Roosevelt, that's one of the first things he talks about is Darwin's book, The Origin of Species, came out a year after Roosevelt was born. So by the time he was old enough to grasp what the book was about, he latched on to it and stayed with it. Darwin was 
a hero to him and prompted Roosevelt to get into the natural history thing. When he went to Harvard, he was a natural history major, even though he thought he was, I think, smarter than all the professors that were there teaching may have been. His problem was he didn't like to sit in labs. He wanted to be out stomping through the woods. He took a taxidermy and would actually stuff and mount his own exhibits. And he had his own little museum when he was, you know, a small child. As a kid, he smelled like formaldehyde. Later, he was fascinated by the pelican, which he thought was a perfect example of Darwin's evolutionary beliefs. He had a really big interest in birds. He was actually fairly decent at drawing. We've seen pictures of his drawings, even as a kid, of birds that he observed. So for him to get an interest in pelicans is kind of a natural thing. And then it also irked him that these people were doing something that was just not acceptable and slaughtering huge numbers of birds for something as silly as ladies' hats. These are the plume hunters we're talking about who decimated something like 90% of Florida's wading birds. Right, he would see these photos of them, racks and racks and racks of dead birds, and just so they could pull off a few of the plumes and stick on a hat. I know in the book, Brinkley says that a pound of feathers was worth more than a pound of gold at that time. That's true. The snowy egret had the showiest feathers, all fluffy and bouffant. They were prized by Gilded Age fashionistas. Joanna Webb works for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which manages Pelican Island. All Migratory birds are now protected by federal law. That's why we have more of them today. It's very common to see a snowy egret. How do you tell a snowy egret? We have five or six different white wading birds here in Florida. It's hard for the untrained eye to kind of distinguish them, but with the snowy egret, you can very easily identify them by looking at their feet. They have what we call golden slippers. They are the only white wading bird that has bright yellow feet. The Pelican Island Refuge originally was just that, a five-acre island in the Indian River Lagoon between Sebastian and the Barrier Island. For the first hundred years of the refuge existence, people could not come to the refuge unless they had a boat, and they could go and boat out to Pelican Island. But they couldn't step foot on it. That's absolutely correct. Over the past decade, the government has expanded the wildlife refuge by buying about 5,000 acres of old citrus groves on the barrier island. Workers have replaced the grapefruit and orange trees with native vegetation. Those native habitats that used to be here before the groves were here were hundreds of years old, possibly. We're looking at creating those habitats again, which would be maritime hammock. You've got a lot of live oak trees that create a very dense jungle-like canopy. We're also looking to restore some habitat now for the endangered southeastern beach. Mouse. Visitors can enter the refuge from North Jungle Trail. There are three trails inside. The names of all 551 National Wildlife Refuges are engraved on the planks of a boardwalk. Today we have over 150 million acres in the National Wildlife Refuge system. It's the largest system of lands for wildlife in the world. That was Joanna Webb. Theodore Roosevelt, who protected land and wildlife throughout the nation, was greatly influenced by Charles Darwin. Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. The Trust for Public Land commissioned a play to help preserve memories of special places in Florida. Bill Dudley has this report. Sunsets here are so beautiful. Sometimes the color travels from autumn to spring to something like a ripe persimmon all inside a minute. Actress Bonnie Egan plays Mary, a woman who, with her husband, ran a business on Treasure Island, a Gulf Coast community near St. Petersburg. She had a bait shop on Blind Pass, she and her husband, and she talks about living there for 30 years and 
her fond memories. And there's a park there now. The Trust for Public Land bought their property and put a park there, and she still goes there and enjoys the sunsets, and she's grateful for that opportunity. I can still come here, and I look forward to coming here. There are memories here. Part of the theme of this whole thing is a sense of home, and this is her home, and it will always be her home. And because of the trust, you know, it will always be there. She is really telling you about her life. She's sharing her narrative of the several decades that they lived at Treasure Island, what that was like raising their kids there, building a second story on their house, running a bait-and-tackle shop. She is giving you her personal narrative, and from that you can extrapolate a whole other kind of thing. Director and playwright Bob Devin Jones. He's the creator of a play exploring the individual experiences of four people from different parts of the state, each telling of their special connection to a piece of Florida land. These sand dunes are very, very special to me. They face the Atlantic Ocean. If you put your ear to the base of them, you can hear an echo. These dunes, they look out across the sea out there towards Africa. In Actor fact, scholar Phyllis McEwen is known to many Floridians for her portrayal of author Zora Neale Hurston. In this production, she plays Mavin Betch, better known as the Beach Lady, a woman who spent the latter part of her life as activist and self-appointed guardian of American Beach near Jacksonville, land threatened by encroaching development. Her great-grandfather purchased that land and gave the African Americans a chance to enjoy beach life during the days of Jim Crow. So she's very, very well connected, and she's a person who gave up a lot of the comforts of life to do what she thought she should do about the land. So much of the environmental ethic and the conservation ethic that undergird what we're trying to do, protect land for people, is very individual, is very personal, and it's about individuals' own histories with the places that they know. Andy McLeod is Director of Government Affairs at the Florida branch of the Trust for Public Land, a national nonprofit organization that buys and holds lands threatened by development, then works with governments to place them in public ownership. The goal is to preserve land for parks, cultural and historic sites, and ecological systems and habitats. Approaching their 30th anniversary, the Florida TPL commissioned the play to be presented in locations around the state as a way of telling or retelling some of the stories of people and their connections to specific places. McLeod hopes some of us can come to reflect on at least one value shared by all Floridians. One of the most basic things that we have in common as Floridians, all 18 million of us, is the land, is the natural environment and the physical beauty of Florida. In fact, that is what has attracted so many of us to Florida. We have that in common. We treasure it. We use it. We use it vigorously. Some say we abuse it, but we also conserve it and we value it. And that is part of what makes us Floridians, is a recognition of the land, of the physical nature of this peninsula state. That's part of what brings us together. That is, in many ways, the beginning of citizenship in Florida or participation in the society, recognition that we all have this treasure, which we all have in common. Response to the Devin Jones production has been positive in several locations around Florida, a state that loses some 20 acres each day at the current pace of development. 
But no statistic can measure the impact of a loss of sense of place or the feeling of losing a home. It's something the people in this play, and hopefully many more, will see as worth fighting for. Of Marvin and all the other characters, I hope people understand how important it is to speak out and be active in public about working with our physical home, the land, and to understand that it's a very healthy, normal, and admirable thing to have ideals about the environment. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. And until then, like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.